All right. Well, thanks for letting me be up here and listening to me and being my captive audience. And if you leave, I will take it personally. Um, no, it is, it is really a blessing for my wife and I to be here. Uh, you'll get to see my wife. She's helping with some of the worship a little later. But uh, just amazing to be up here with you guys. That was, wow, that was incredible. Um, I kind of wanted to just, like, wink over to Steve and be like, dude, we could be done. That, that could be enough. That was amazing. So thank you guys for that. Um, my wife and I are currently living in Rockford, but as I found out uh, a little more recently, there's a Rockford here in Michigan. It's not that one. Uh, we're around the horn of the lake on the other side in that state called Illinois, uh, above the city called Chicago. So we're about four hours from here right now, and we're there with our three girls. We have three beautiful, wonderful girls, uh, 11, 8, and 4. And uh, we are currently in a stage of transition in our lives. Uh, a matter of about nine months ago, we felt God really just impressing on our hearts that it was time for us to put our money and our lives where our mouth is. Uh, and it was time to step out of our comfort zones and out of the places of safety and into a place of risk. And so that's where we're at right now. And uh, I got to say, it's, it's got its moments. And there's moments where we kind of look at each other and we're like, did we really just do this? Uh, but that's where we're at, and so it's just a blessing uh, to be able to be here with you this morning, open God's Word. Uh, we're going to be looking at Luke 19, so if you want to go ahead and turn there right now. Um, I know you've been going through the book of Luke, and it's just a privilege to be able to open this because I think, I think what we're going to see is just a continuation of, of what God put on the hearts of of the, the students who are up here with us already this morning. And I love how God does that, how he ties things together that we could never have known. Uh, but his spirit, thank goodness, is much bigger and more powerful and more wise than we are. And so just the way I think this is all going to tie together this morning is just, it's beautiful. So uh, open your Bibles. And in case you haven't been up and down enough this morning, I'm going to have you stand up one more time uh, as we honor the reading of God's Word together. I'm going to be in the NIV, uh, but you can read whatever version you have along with me, starting in verse 11. And it says, while they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called 10 of his servants and gave them 10 minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. He was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, Sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, Sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here is your mina. I have kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and, and you reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man? taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow? Why then didn't you put my money on deposit 
so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they said, he, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what he has will be taken away. But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. And on that bright note, you can be seated. (laughs) Well, this morning, as we dig into this in just a moment, we need to back up and kind of be refreshed and reminded of what we've been hearing so far in the book of Luke. So you've been hearing about this God who's constantly flipping things upside down and, and flipping over the apple cart, so to say, and, and, and forcing people to rethink what does it mean to be part of God's kingdom? What is, his, what is different in his economy, and, and why are things so unusually different when he speaks it? And you were going through things like the rich young ruler and the fact that Jesus says, this man, it will be impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God. And then you read a story that comes right after that. The words are barely out of Jesus' mouth. He enters into this small village and you see Zacchaeus and you see Zacchaeus being redeemed. And you're like, wait a minute, how? I thought you said it's impossible for the rich young ruler, for this young man to enter the kingdom of God. Well, it's impossible with him but not impossible with God. And so once again, God's, God's flipping things upside down and, and forcing us to, to look at things differently. And in these moments like this, all through the book of Luke, he's constantly put us in, putting us in these moments of contrast and these tension points where we have to wrestle with something that is somewhat uncomfortable and, and we're finding these balance points, like the fact that his way is filled with grace, but rarely is it comfortable. Or the fact that he's a God who gives us more than we could expect and expects so much more than we're often willing to give. And sometimes we have to look at this and realize that there's passages that maybe we've read through hundreds and hundreds of times that maybe it's time for us to take a fresh look at. And so that's what we want to do this morning. We want to take a fresh look at this passage and what God's saying to us. And the first thing we need to do is kind of detox a little bit. Okay, so if any of you have ever heard this passage before, there's a tendency for us to do a couple things. One, we want to compare it to another parable that some of us have heard before, the parable of the ten talents. And it's not the same parable. It's two different times. It's two different audiences, lots of different details. It's not the same parable. So we don't want to make that mistake. We also don't want to make another mistake. See, we live in a culture that tends to be very success-driven and entitled and capitalistic. And we don't want to make the error of reading some of that tendency back into this passage because it's going to skew how we see it. And so we want to look at it this morning a little bit closer to the eyes and ears of the people who would have been there hearing the story to begin with. And so that's what we're going to try to do this morning. We're going to walk through God's Word. We're going to see what it has to say, hopefully listen to it a little bit more like the people would have heard it there right after God was done talking to Zacchaeus. And then we're going to see... Uh, what we might do with that as we leave here this morning. So as we look into this, look, look at verse 11 in your Bibles, and we're just going to go through and kind of explain a couple things, because as he starts this, the first thing he says is, while they were there listening to this, well, what's this? Well, if you look just at the verse right above it, he had just gotten done telling Zacchaeus, he says, today's salvation has come to this house. 
because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save what was lost. And those words are still hanging in the air when Jesus starts this parable. So it's barely out of his mouth and it's like he knows. Any parents in the room? Do you ever know you can look at your kids and you know what they're thinking? Ever have those moments? If you haven't, um, you will, hopefully, and you'll catch them before they do something really bad. Uh, But you have those moments, right, where you're like, I know what you're thinking, and we see that that's what Jesus does. He knows what they're thinking. He knows where their minds are going. And so he says, listen, I'm going to tell you a parable. And he knows where they're going because he knows that some of them were very uh, apocalyptic and zealous in their thinking. And they were expecting Jesus, as he was going to head back to Jerusalem, to bring his kingdom in a political way, in a very real way, right here and now. And so they're ready. They're like, all right, let's do this. We're going to head back to Jerusalem. Jesus is going to bring the kingdom. We're going to take over. It's going to be awesome. And Jesus is like, that is not my kingdom. That is not my plan. We need to go back to the drawing board. And so he shares this parable because that wasn't his plan. That's not what his kingdom was about. That's not what his kingdom's economy looked like. Not what the values were lined up to be. And so he was going to re-explain this. And so he starts the story by telling them, he says, listen, it's about a a noble man of noble birth who was going to go to a far off land and be appointed king. And the great thing about this is these people would have understood that. The first time I read it, I'm honestly, I'm looking at it going, what? He goes to another land to be made king. That'd be like us sending all of our candidates, which maybe wouldn't be so horrible, to a whole nother country, right? To a totally different country and being like, all right, you figure out who it's going to be and then one of you comes back, right? That's how I read it. That's, that's not how it really is. In fact, as they would have heard this, this wasn't that uncommon. It was very common. In fact, As they would have read this, they would have instantly been thinking of Herod the Great, who in 40 BC did the same thing. He went to a far-off land, he was officially made ruler, and then when he came back, he had the money, he had the title, he had it all. And then only 36 years later, his own son would do the same thing with a very different result. He wouldn't come back with a title. And in times, there were also people who would go to be made king, and they wouldn't come back at all. They were either killed or there was a coup or there, you know, something happened, but this was very common. It was very unstable and, and constantly shifting. And so that's kind of the political climate that he's describing and that these people totally would have understood. And they also knew that this process was not a, a quick process. For someone to go to another land and be made king, it was going to take a while. And so even there, he's kind of dropping these hints like this is not the kingdom that's coming next week as I enter Jerusalem. And then he starts moving on. He says, okay, so he's about to go, but before he goes, here's what happens. He calls 10 of his servants together, emphasis on servant, gives them 10 minus. You're like, what's a minus? Well, a mina is three and a half months wages. It's not a small amount of cash. It's a large gift, a very gracious act It's a big responsibility that he entrusts to these servants. And he says, put this money to work, or or better said, engage this in trade. He's like, get involved, do something with what I'm giving you. And he ends it with, until I come back. Or, Or maybe, again, better understood would be, in which I am coming back. 
It's like he's saying, yes, I am coming back. This isn't an if-then statement. This isn't like, well, okay, if everything goes as planned and I make it back, then this is what I... No, he's saying, I am coming back. So do this. There's a, there's a bold confidence from this noble ruler. He will come back and he has expectations. And so he says, listen, this is what's going to happen. And now it's the servants that he's dealt with but then look at what happens next. Look, look who steps into the scene. Verse 14, it says, but his subjects hated him. So much so that they sent a delegation, a, a sabotage team, maybe, is better understood. They're like, we have to make sure that this does not happen. And, and why? Why do they hate him so much? Well, we'll get into that in a little bit, but here's what we do know. Look at what it says that they they send as their message. We don't want this man to be our king. The word that they use there for man, it's Luke's little subtle way of inserting a nice word for an expletive. It's like, we don't want this expletive to be our king. Could you, he's already the ruler of that land. This is not something where he's just a commoner and he's going to go, like he's already in charge of these people. He's just simply going to be made officially king. And they've got some pretty harsh words. And where I'm from, words like that, those are fighting words, right? Somebody steps up, says something like that. Okay, we're going to go take it outside. There's going to be a little crowd around. So is that what happens? Not at all. Look at verse 15. He says, he was made king, however, and returned. It's almost like there's this giant elephant in the room, and no one really acknowledges it. And so this giant elephant becomes really more like this annoying little fly, like, well, we just, okay, it's there, just swat it away, let's move on. It will be dealt with later, but I, I think it's important to notice that even as they describe, and he did come back, that it was this inevitable thing, it was going to happen. There was no doubt, there was confidence, and I love the fact that when he comes back, the first thing that he says, look at verse 15, it says, he was made king, however, and returned home, then he sent for the servants. First thing he wants to see are the servants. He wanted to know, what have you done? So I've been gone all this time, what have you done? Your version might read, that he might know what business they had transacted, He's like, all right, let's get down to it. How do things go? And as we're going to see in just a second, how he evaluates them, how he evaluates what they did is going to make all the difference in this parable. And it's going to make all the difference in our lives. How he evaluates and what he evaluates is the thing that tips this entire parable. Verse 16, the, the first one comes back and he reports on what the king's mina has earned. And there's a couple things we've got to see about how he says this. First of all, do you notice how he says it's your mina? He says, your mina has earned ten more. And notice what else he doesn't say. He doesn't give his business plan. He doesn't give all the ways that he did it. He doesn't break down his new built and padded resume of like, look how awesome I am. Look what I did. In fact, he never even references himself. He simply says, your mina has earned ten more. Did it just magically happen? 
Did the, did the servant just wake up? He's like, look at this. There's, there's 10. I, I went to bed. There was one. Now there's 10. This is fantastic. No, we know that there was some work involved. And we know that because of how the master responds in verse 17. Look at that verse. Verse 17, he says, well done, my good servant. Well, yeah. I mean, he gave him one mina and he's got 10. Just like that, he goes from one set of three and a half months wages, all of a sudden, he's like, look at this. Look, look what I have. Some of you business guys are out there, you're like, you're like, that's a good, that's a good, that's, I like that improvement. Return on investment, yes. But here's the difference. Look at what he says. His focus is not actually on the profit. I mean, that's where our minds go, right? Our minds instantly go to like the bottom line. Look at that money. Look how much that is. Look at what he says. He says, because you have been trustworthy or faithful in a very small matter, take charge of 10 cities. He doesn't say because you turned a profit or because you saw success in this amount. No, he commends the servants for his faithfulness, not his profit, not his success, his faithfulness. His faithfulness, not a transaction, not a series of transactions, but a long obedience in the same direction, faithfulness. That's what he awards. The faithfulness here is a big deal because what was happening here is as the king went away, what would it have meant for that servant or any of those servants to have had to be faithful with the money? What meant they would have had to put themselves at risk? They would have been identifying themselves if they wanted to do anything positive with that mina. They would have had to identify themselves with the ruler that all those subjects hated. So think about that for a second. The king leaves, everyone hates him, and he signifies by giving money to 10 servants that they're part of his crew. Did we mention that they hate him? So do you think they're going to look at the servants and be like, well, we hate the king, but you're okay? No. Trust me, as, as someone who in my soul, I, I hate that feeling when you can tell someone doesn't like you. I'm just being honest. That's like the shallowness of me. Like, I, I hate that feeling. Like, I want to do something to make things right and to repair and like, okay, how do we make things okay? And, and what they're saying in this parable, one of the things that's going to come up is the fact that there's nothing they could do except remain faithful because it wasn't about the people. It was about faithfulness to the king and what he had called them to. So they're putting themselves at risk, at danger. They were going to have to sacrifice, and it was going to be a long period of this. But they were going to have to do it really well because they were still going to have to make money from the people who hated them. That's, now we're not talking about such an easy little transaction. And now suddenly the faithfulness means something very different. And so as much as they were despised and and putting themselves at risk, the faithfulness is what's rewarded. And it's not rewarded with more privileges. It's rewarded with more what? More responsibility. He's like, you did well with this responsibility. Now it's time to take on some more responsibility. And it's really not that crazy of a response, like I said, I've got three daughters. I absolutely love those moments as a dad that when one of my daughters shows themselves 
faithful and responsible with something I've given them to be able to reward them with more responsibility, to see them grow, to, to give them more than they thought they could handle, then watch them succeed and then give them more again. That's not necessarily the crazy part to the story. The crazy part is how outrageous the responsibility is that he gives them. Here's three and a half months wages. You did really well with that. Here's 10 cities. It'd be like this. It'd be like as, as we're gone this weekend, it'd be like me telling my daughter, okay, I want, I want you to take care of our dog. The dog's eight and a half pounds, so don't worry. I want you to take care of the dog. And then I get home and find out that she's done a great job. And so I pull her aside and I'm like, look, you've done amazing with the dog. I mean, you, you took care of her. You taught her three new tricks over the weekend. I don't know how you did that. You took the dog out when she needed to go. You even took the dog out in the rain when your sisters were like having fun playing and you did the hard thing and kind of like took the dog out, took her for a walk, did the whole, you know what, good job, way to go. You are now responsible for caring for and raising your two younger sisters. <laughs> right, okay, maybe not quite that extreme. But that's, that's the general idea. You're like, wait, 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 what? How does that How does this compute to this? What computes because he's exhibiting the generous and gracious nature of the king. He's saying, I gave you that mind to begin with. That was huge. And if that didn't blow your mind enough, now I'm going to give you even more, more than you could have ever imagined. No one would have thought that these servants who were just dealing with some money and being faithful in it were going to be then put in charge of entire cities when the king came back. But that's what he does. And it gets everyone's attention. So I guarantee you, as Jesus is telling this parable, all of a sudden, those moments, you know, when people start fading off, like a couple of you have, don't worry, it's early. I get it. But like at that moment, when he shares that example, boom, everyone's locked back in. And so then he goes on and he says, listen, the second came back. And you're like, oh, he gave all the cities away, right? So he, the second servant, tough luck. You're not going to get... But no, that's not what happens. The second servant has the same response. He says, sir, your mina has earned five. And so the king, again, exhibiting consistency and faithfulness and grace, gives the same to him that he did the first servant. He says, great, you got five mina back? That's awesome. Here's five cities. Incredible. Setting a trend showing us the true character and nature of this, excuse me, of this king. And now we don't know what happens between the second and the third. We don't know if like the rest of the ten servants came along. We don't know if he just happens to be the third and the rest of the servants weren't important after this. We don't know, but that's not the point. The point is this. The third servant has a very different response for the king. And we're also going to see that the king has a very different response for him. Verse, 30, or verse 20, it says, he says basically, hey, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. So already a very different response. Basically what he was saying was this, hey, I kept it exactly the way you gave it to me. I played it safe, just the way people would have expected me to play. Because in that day, If someone goes away to be made king, that means the country is unstable. That means at any moment, 
Somebody could rise up in power and decide to overthrow, and now the country you thought it was going to be, now it's a different kingdom, and it's a different person in charge, and he might be more militaristic, and who knows? All we know is this, this person wasn't the crazy one. You see, in that day, the smart thing would have been exactly what he did, to play it safe, step away, wait and see how things fall. Hey, let's, let's just let things settle a little bit. Okay, we don't know if this king's coming back. What, hey, what if he doesn't? We've seen it happen before. We've seen, we've seen kings not even make it to the country before they get axed. We, we don't know what's going to happen, so I'm going to play it safe, and, and I'm going to back the right horse once I know who's going to win, right? And so the people hearing this story, they, they wouldn't have thought he was actually that crazy. They would have thought the faithful servants were the crazy ones. They'd be like, why, why, would you do, why would you put yourself at risk? And so this one's not actually as crazy as we want to think he is. I, I didn't want to make any sacrifices. I, I, I didn't want to take any chances. I didn't want to put myself out there. I didn't want to pay the cost. And then he says, why? He says, you didn't really seem that gracious. You were pretty, pretty harsh. I think what's one of the saddest things is that up to this point, up to this point, there's been nothing to show that this is what the king is actually like. The way that this third servant, this unfaithful servant, is going to describe the king, we haven't seen anything to allude that that's what he's really like, right? Like that should really jump out at us when we see that him describing him as a hard man, Because up till now, we've seen nothing but graciousness, extravagant graciousness. And yet here, this this unfaithful servant describes him in such a harsh, harsh way. And then to top it all off, he pays him this wonderful compliment. He says, I was afraid of you because you are a hard man. You take what you did not put in. You reap what you didn't sow. You go into lands and you just take what you want. The funny thing is, if, if this was a Bedouin culture or a raider culture, that would have been a compliment to the king because that's how they made money for their people. They would go in, they would take over lands. And we see that even in David in the Psalms. We know that there were times where the way he provided for his people was he would go into the neighboring countries and raid them. And then he was applauded for it. Here's the catch. As Jesus is telling this story, that's not who it is. They're an agricultural community. They're settled. And, and what this servant says to the king, or yeah, to the king, it is, it is pretty harsh. It is rude. It's not a compliment. And what it really shows us is this. That third servant didn't really know who the king was. He had made a really poor assessment of the king and his character He thought he knew who the king was. He didn't have a clue. And so this servant clearly has the wrong view of the king. And in verse 22 and 23, what's really interesting is that the king doesn't correct him. He actually allows the misconception of himself to remain and actually become the platform by which he judges the servant. Think about that for a second. Somebody comes to you, says some really harsh things about you, and instead of correcting them, which is what most of us do on Facebook, a lot of us, right, 
Like, he leaves it and says, fine, if that's what you think I am, then that's the basis by which you're going to be judged. And I've got to be honest with you, as I read that, that's really hard for me to think of Christ in that way. Wouldn't he want to adjust this man's perspective? Wouldn't he want to say, no, 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 this is who I am? Because that's what this parable is, right? This parable is to show who he is. But here's, here's the catch. Psalm 18, 25, and 26, we read this. It says, you are loyal to those who are loyal. With the innocent, you prove yourself to be innocent. With the clean, you show yourself to be clean. And with the twisted, you make yourself contrary and remain twisted. I think some of us want to instantly be like, no, 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 if, if God knew that they had a wrong view of him, he's going to come in and he's going to fix it. Well, I'm just saying based on Scripture, that's, that's not necessarily true. In Ecclesiastes 7.11, it says that we, we are told, God says, listen, who can make straight the paths that I have made crooked? Listen, there are times where it's hard for us to conceive that God would ever allow something to be known of himself different than what is actually true. But in this moment, he says, okay, fine. This is how you see me. This is how you've experienced me. He knows it's not true. Everyone hearing the story knows it's not true. They know that this, this man would have experienced nothing but grace, forgiveness, extravagant grace. But in front of all of them, he says, fine, then I will leave you with your self-conceived, skewed misconception of me. That's, that's hard. I think for a lot of us, it's hard for me. And then he points out, though, I love this, he points out that even in his misconceptions, he's not consistent. Do you notice that? He's like, listen, if you really believed this, then this is how you should have acted. So even in his wrongness, he was wrong. Think about that for a second. You're like, you're, you're so off track, you can't even do wrong correctly. <laughs> and and as you're reading this, you're like, wait a minute, oh yeah, this is, this is totally screwed up. And the bottom line is this, he made the ruler out to be something that he wasn't. Something that he wasn't. And as he made the ruler out to be something that he wasn't, it led him to a view of himself, to a view of the opposition, and to a view of his course of action that was completely off base. And I think what's really sad about that is if we think back along biblical history through the life of the church, we've had season after season after season where this has been true of some of us. As we tie ourselves to the history of human past, we have to recognize that, that we are not perfect in this. We can't look at the unfaithful servant and say, I would never do that. My ancestors would never do that. Because unfortunately, we have story after story where the church or people who call themselves believers have made themselves a Jesus that fits them a little bit better than the Jesus we see in Scripture. We have situations like the Gnostics who made Jesus something that, that people could just find within themselves. We have story like the Docetists who who rejected the, that the word actually became flesh and that the word was just a spiritual thing, never actually came to earth, never died, never was sacrificed, never rose again. We have religions today that, 
that claim that Jesus is part of it, but he's just a good prophet. He's just a good teacher. They've made Jesus out to be something that he's not. But there's also even people who call themselves Christians today that, that they've made Jesus into this hate-spewing defender of a political agenda. The reality is this. We have a horrible habit as human beings to try to make Jesus into something that he's not. And when we do, it skews everything after that. And here's this unfaithful servant who has a completely wrong view of the king. And because of that, it taints everything else. And we see the king come to him and say, okay, we need to deal with the issue. We're going to deal with the issue and the result of the issue, but, but you're going to remain in your misconception. And I'm going to judge you based on that. Look at verse 24 and 25. Because in the king's economy, he values faithfulness and he rewards it. But he does not value unfaithfulness and he will not let it go unaddressed. So the responsibility is something that the king wants to give someone and so he gives it and takes it from that unfaithful servant and gives it to the one who has already shown himself abundantly faithful. And I think what's interesting is the people that are standing there, it says, sir, they said, he already has 10. You know what that reveals? It reveals those people who are saying this are probably in the same camp as the unfaithful servant. The faithful servant would have humbly responded with arms open wide, ready to be faithful with that new gift. The unfaithful are the ones who say, hey, wait, 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 wait. That's not fair. How is that fair? Sadly, I feel like I've been in that place in my own life where I look at the people around me, I look at other Christ followers, and I think to myself, wait, 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 God. I mean, my life and their life, how is this fair? And I think sadly, in those moments, the lack of response isn't, isn't God altering my view, it's God saying, you know what, maybe you just need to sit in that perspective for a little bit. And so he says, listen, What you had is going to be given. So the one who already had will be given more. The one who does not have, even that will be taken away. It's the faithful response. And then we see even more response. His graciousness to even explain that. He's the king. Let's not forget that. He didn't have to explain it. He didn't have to pull them aside and say, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because he's the king. And as we know, the king can decide whatever he wants. And yet the graciousness and the compassion of this king to to take the moments and say, let me explain to you the values of my kingdom. Let me explain to you how things work. Let me show you the priorities. Let me show you my grace and my love. My grace is beyond what you can understand. Let me prove it to you. The faithful servant would have heard that and would have been overwhelmed with gratitude. The unfaithful servant, well, we see. They don't get it. They're frustrated. They're shaking their fists. This isn't fair. He already has 10. Why does he get more? The graciousness of the king. And as he continues to clarify some of these values, we begin to see something come up that we have to recognize 
It's that our good king gives more than you'd expect. It's so clear through this story. He gives more than you'd expect. But there's a second part to that. It's that our good king expects more than you'd expect. And as we see that and we find ourselves caught in the middle and we think, okay, that's good, we're done. There's still one more part to it. Verse 27, it says, But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. You're like, hold up. I thought this was like, Jesus, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the cheek, you know, that whole thing. Like, they want your cloak, give them your jacket. Like, what, what's going on? Well, here's what's important for us to see. When the king comes back, he has two points of action. He wants to determine the faithfulness of his servants, and he wants to confront those who rejected him and his rule. But do you notice what we don't see here? We don't see it carried out. We see the sentence that's deserved, but we don't see the sentence carried out. Does that sound familiar to anyone? Isn't it amazing how, how often in Scripture God makes what we deserve so abundantly clear and how often he either withholds or steps in front of that punishment to receive it himself. And I don't think it's by chance that we don't see the end of this story. There's a reason that, the, that Jesus left this parable hanging because it was a chance for them to say, okay, which one are you? Are you the faithful servant or the unfaithful servant? You've seen everything you need to know about this king. Is he the king who will kill the people? Or is he the king who will show grace and forgiveness? And will provide a way out. What do you think? And what's great is then he leaves and marches his way into Jerusalem. Right from that parable. It's his last words. Marches right into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. I mean, that's, that's incredible. I mean, just think about that just for a moment. He's like, listen, my kingdom is different. Did those citizens deserve death and punishment? You better believe it. Is my kingdom different? Absolutely. And I think as we wrap up this morning, one of the things that we want to see is, okay, what, what do we do with this? How do we, how do we wrap our arms around this to understand where we go from here? And I think it's as simple as this. It's us looking at some of these pieces and saying, okay, what are the deciding factors in the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of these servants? And really, all of it boils down to one very important and simple thing that starts everything else, and that is the right view of the king. If we have the right view of the king, it changes everything after that. But if we have the wrong view of the king, the same thing's true. Every step after that is dramatically altered based on the view that we have of Jesus Christ. Our view of Christ, his character, his promises, his power, his grace, all of it is absolutely primary in the way that we view ourselves, in the way that we view our community, in the way that we view our opposition, in the way that we view the task that God has set in front of us as part of his kingdom, the kingdom come, the kingdom as it is on earth, as it is in heaven, how we view all of that hinges 100% back 
on how we view the king. Because if we don't view the king for who he really is and we make him out to be something that he's not, it will allow us to find ourselves in places that are extremely unhealthy, way more comfortable than God would desire, way more risk-free than would ever bring change in our world, way more selfish than would ever allow us to love the people who need it. If our view is wrong, if we don't understand how his plan of redemption is sown through the history of time, we will miss how he has called us into it. But if we have the right view, if we have the full picture, if we begin to seek out who Christ is and what that means for us, good and bad, if we seek out who Christ is and what that means, both completely understandable and completely mysterious, and we find ourselves within that tension point where it's like, I want to know the Jesus who says that he wants to be known by us and yet is mysterious in all of his ways. Then it will lead us to a place where we have a right view of ourself, of humility, of our role in his kingdom, of what it means for us to step out, not for ourselves, but for him. Not for our own glory, not for our own pedestal and our own mini kingdom building, but for him and his kingdom. Will we live like citizens who reject and oppose Jesus and what he's doing? Or will we be like the unfaithful servant and live in this spiraling downward way with the wrong view that leads to wrong perceptions of self, that leads to wrong courses of action? Or, or will we be people who stand in the face of opposition and say, I will remain faithful, not once, not twice, not this year, not this month. It will not be a New Year's resolution that fades by February, but I will give my life to faithfulness, not perfection, but faithfulness. What will that look like? And think about this. For many people, they will know the king and they will know the purpose and meaning of his kingdom based on what they see in us. That is the only way they will see Christ. It is the only way they will see his kingdom. And so how would people describe Jesus? How would they describe the king based on what they see in and through us? How would they describe us regardless of whether they like us or not? How would they see us? Would they see us as people who are committed who are gracious, who are loving, who are willing to give abundantly regardless of what it costs us. Tomorrow we remember Martin Luther King Jr. And he was a man who knew what he was here to do. He knew what it meant to remain faithful in the face of opposition, even unto death. So much so that his faithfulness and his commitment cost him his life, but those ripples impacted his entire culture. So much so that we still feel the effects of those ripples today. That is faithfulness. Faithfulness in the face of opposition. Faithfulness to a kingdom that is of heaven that can be known on earth. That's faithfulness. That's also the right view of the opposition. It's not ignoring that it's there, 
but it's recognizing its ultimate end. It's recognizing who's in charge, who wins in the end. I love the fact that we have a book that we can skip to the end and we know how it goes, right? I love that. I'm too ADD to wait. I need to know. But all of that also, the right view of our enemies. That's why Jesus said we pray for those who persecute us. When someone strikes you, you turn the other cheek. When's the last time, I mean, you got hit hard in your heart, in your soul, in your business, your kids were injured, and you didn't respond on Facebook, or you didn't rip the restaurant apart who took 10 minutes extra on Yelp and give them a bad review. It's the right view of the opposition, the opportunity to love, to forgive. And all of this leads to the right course of action. That we would know how to live a life of faithfulness, a life of gratitude. Not giving, not serving, not striving to be faithful because we hope that he will accept us. It's because he's already accepted us that we strive and long to be faithful. That's the difference. So when we see Jesus for who he is, who he's called us to be, we will desire to be part of his kingdom. We will desire to be faithful. Faithful not because it's easy, but faithful because it's for Christ. Faithful because of all that he's done and is and will be in our lives. All that he has promised, all that he has already fulfilled. But it all starts back with the right view of the king. So with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, let me just pray for us as we close. And let these questions just sift through our minds and our hearts as we, as we will leave this place here in a few moments. But, but more importantly, for us to have the opportunity with these songs that will be sung, for us to have our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes redirected on who Jesus is. That in our lives of worship, in our lives of service, that people would see him, that our kids would see him, that our coworkers would see him, that people's lives would be eternally changed, not because of the profit in our lives, but because of the faithfulness, the faithfulness to a king who is beyond understanding and yet desires to be known that he would love and show grace and forgiveness. That he would bring, bring beauty to our homes, to our neighborhoods, to our communities. That redemption would sweep through this city, through the state of Michigan. Because a group of people would, would be committed to having a right view of the king. So God, move in our hearts. Let that be true of us this morning. That God, in the places that in our own brokenness we would desire to make you something that you are not, to make us more comfortable, to make it easier, God, that you would move us into a place of discomfort, a place of risk, a place of challenge, where you are lovingly waiting to show us more of who you are, more of what you long to be in our lives, more of what you long to be in this community. 
that as we are changed, that the people around us would be changed. It's in your name we pray. Just stand with us.